When Christians read the Bible, the understandable focus is almost always on the nice parts. The problem is that there are parts of the Bible that aren't so nice. And those parts are starting to get a lot more attention. Seemingly strange commands condemning tattoos? Verses that seem to endorse slavery? How about the verses telling women they should submit and remain silent and can't say anything in church? What do we do with all the verses that make it feel like you're being forced to choose between the Bible and science? How do we make sense of all this? Because it's all there in the Bible. All right, we continue our series on how not to read the Bible. And I have always had this conviction. It's actually one of the things that's written in the front of my journal. I do this thing weird in my journal. There's a bunch of stuff written in the front of it. And one of them is a page of convictions, like things I've learned over the years. Like here's one, no drums is better than bad drums. Okay, right? So... Because if, anyway, and, and that has applications all over the place. Just fill in the blank. Just substitute drums for anything. In church, no drums is better than bad drums. Because if you have bad drums, it just reinforces the people who don't like drums. But if you have good drums, you have a chance. One of my convictions is this, is that the primary threats of the church, Jesus' church, and his followers are from within, not from without. Let me just say that again. The primary threats of the church and fo- um, Jesus' followers are from within, not without. I have great confidence. And in fact, I've leaned into this verse in Matthew 16 over and over during the last year is that when Jesus says he's going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I mean, I have confidence that it's his job to keep the church going and to do its thing. But man, I am frustrated. I have to tell you, I'm super frustrated and I have been for a year through this whole time when those of us inside the church have been so critical of people who feel and think differently. And this has really shown up in this debate about science and faith. And so let me just, some disclaimers. I'm not a scientist. Everybody knew, I know you knew that, but I just wanted to say it. I'm not a biologist. I'm not, I'm not any of those ists. I'm a, I'm a practicing theologian and pastor to you. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the the seeming conflict between faith and science, and especially how to sometimes react to some of the caricatures and the straw man presentations that you hear over and over again about what Christians believe and don't believe and how many times how dumb they are because of what they think. This this. In the last 15 years or so, this has gotten really aggressive. Let me just read you a few titles that have been bestsellers. The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. The End of Faith by Sam Harris. God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. God, The Failed Hypothesis 
by Victor Stinger. The new atheism, taking a stand for science and reason. And then faith versus fact, why science and religion are incompatible. The message is clear on the outside of the church is that science is good and religion is bad. Not just wrong, in fact, it's evil. And so there's been a, what we think is this long-standing conflict between science and faith. But in fact, a guy named Ron Numbers said this. It's more propaganda. He's a historian. He said it's more propaganda than history. History of science and religion is not a history of enduring conflict. There is no war, but a pervasive perception of conflict. So let me take some time. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to define the boundaries of orthodoxy. We're going to actually discover together that the boundaries of orthodoxy inside of evangelical Christian faith are actually quite wide. And there's a, there's a number of different things. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to show you some. I'm going to show you about eight, if we can get through them, eight theories on creationism, because creationism is really the, it's the topic that everybody goes to when they're talking about science versus faith. So let's just hit that. And then let's just take a quick look at Genesis chapter 1 together, see what it says and maybe what it doesn't say, and then ask the question, how do we move forward? So let me pray for us, and let's jump in. God, I need your help. I need, I desire that as a community of people, we would be stimulated towards deeper thought because inside of that deeper thought, there are greater thoughts of you. Oh God and Father, creator of the heavens and the earth, Will you help us to understand the culture, the, the, the debates, the arguments that we find ourselves in? And may we be not only motivated towards deeper and greater thoughts of you, but also kinder and more grace-filled thoughts of one another. Only you could do that, I can't do it. So please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me help you just with some things about this whole debate that we're talking about. When we begin to talk about the universe, you basically say, was there a beginning or not? As you begin this, this conversation, you say, did it, did it begin or not? If it had no beginning, then you're saying that, that, that all that we see, all that we recognize in our creation is actually eternal. Or you say, no, it did have a beginning. That there was a time when it started. Now there's all kinds of disagreement about how it started and all that stuff. But let me just read to you out of this book called The Language of God by Francis Collins. He says, using the Doppler effect, the same principle that allows the state police to determine the speed of your car as you pass by their equipment, or that causes the whistle of an oncoming train to have a higher pitch than after it has passed you. Hubble found 
that everywhere he looked, the light in the galaxies suggested that they were receding from Mars, moving away. And the farther away they were, the faster in the galaxies they were moving away from us. If everything in the universe is flying apart, reversing the arrow of time would predict that at some point, all of these galaxies were together in one incredible, incredibly massive entity. Hubble's observations started the deluge of experimental measurements that over the last 70 years have led to the conclusion by the vast majority of physicists and cosmologists that the universe began at a single moment. Commonly known or referred to as some as the Big Bang Theory. And so you begin with, did it have a beginning or did it not? And most people, most scientists, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter, believe now because of some of the evidence that I just shared and others, lots more, that the universe had a beginning. Now, was this beginning uncaused, just the, the product of just enough time, enough space, enough chance, or was it caused? And it's in here that I go back to Collins again, and I want to read one more thing. He says, the Big Bang, what he refers to as the start of the universe, cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. An uncaused cause. An eternal being at the beginning of the creation of the universe. And, he's, and Francis Collins is saying from his perspective and his interaction with, with scientists all around the country, that there, it just screams out that there had to be a cause. Now this cause, was it impersonal or was it personal? Now, this is a lot of people jump on this one too because it begins to, it begins to show that lots of people right here will say, we think it was aliens, aliens cause. They're the they're the cause at the beginning. It was impersonal. But, but watch this. If you begin to ask this question and you begin to work your way through, the road to orthodoxy is here. That the universe had a beginning. That beginning was caused by an eternal uncaused cause. And that cause is personal and involved in our being in our existence, not impersonal. And this is the broad, now there's tons of other things that divine it, but this is the path. If you start going off and say the universe didn't begin, the universe was uncaused, the universe was caused by an impersonal cause, then you are outside of orthodoxy. You're following me? What I'm trying to show you is there's a ton of, when you work your way through these three, there's a ton of conclusions you can draw all still inside of where orthodoxy is. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's where orthodoxy, that is the 
bedrock of our tenets of our faith. Jesus in his resurrection being the main tenets of Christianity. Now, in this, once you work through this, like I said, there's all kinds of different conclusions that you would have. I'm going to try to give you fairly succinctly all conclusions that are different from one another that fall inside of Christian orthodoxy, okay? So I'm not going to give you ones that, are, that start this way, but then they leave Christianity. I mean, there's, you, can just, you, you can think of them all. I mean, Islam is here. The Jewish faith is here. It's not Christianity. So these are now theories about the creation. I'm not, I can't really, can we bring the house up just a little bit? It's a smidge. Hey, hi. Are you with me so far? Okay, because when, when someone who doesn't really understand all that he's talking about is trying to explain it to some others, I need to be sure... The main area of debate really is around in the science versus faith in the dialogue. It's, it begins, of course, it begins with creation. And so let me give you several different theories that involve God as the creator that fall inside of Christian orthodoxy. Okay. First is young earth. Young earth is a belief that the days in Genesis are literal 24 hour days. They are six consecutive days. And that if you take the days of Genesis plus the um, genealogies that we have listed in the scriptures, you can come up with the, the age of the earth being somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 years. Now, let me say right away, God can do anything he wants. As I lay these out, it doesn't, it, God took six, if, if it was six literal days, it wasn't because he was really tired. He didn't have to hurry to get it done. He could have created all that we see and enjoy and know in six seconds. Okay, so this is not, this is not, I'm not presenting anything that says God can do whatever he wants. And he is certainly, we begin with, he is certainly the beginning of a personal God who caused this. That's, that's the young earth. Appearance of age is a modification of young earth and it would say it was six literal days, but when God created things, he created them to look old. And so that's why some of the dating confuses us, that it appears old, but it's not. It's really still young. There's a gap theory. There's many variations of this, but the gap theory says basically there, these were six 24-hour days, but there were gaps between those days that we don't have explained. And there could be millions of years between the first day and the second day. The first day was a literal day, but then there's a gap between what happened on day one and day two. Preparing the garden is a modified gap theory. It's that Genesis 1.1 talks about creation, and then when you start to get to Genesis 2, it's, it's God preparing the garden, and so it's, it's a modified gap theory where it doesn't, Genesis 1 and all of the days don't, don't have anything to do with the length of time. Old earth creationism. This is the understanding or the side that says that the day mentioned in Genesis 
is, can be referring to an age or an epoch. And that the Hebrew word there, yom, for day, could have been used not for like day of the Lord. Yom, day of the Lord is not necessarily a 24-hour day. Um, the days of the king, same word. It's the time period so that the day is not to be taken too specifically. So they would say that old earth creationism basically holds, gives room for difference of understanding about how the days work. And days in Genesis are not literal 24-hour days. Genesis as an ancient cosmology, this is from a guy who's way too smart for me to try to explain to you named John Walton, but he basically says that um, God is creating not materially, but functionally. And so when he creates, when, he, when it says that he created life, he's, he's creating the function of life, but not the material that exists there. That book, if you're interested, John Walton, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Um, number seven, intelligent design. Where evolution is lacking the ability to fill in some of the gaps as we understand life now, intelligent design people would say way more than this, but they would say that God steps in there. So there's... They would say that there's not any macro evolution from going from, you know, a single cell um, organism all the way over here to us. That didn't happen just as through time and chance in billions of years. Intelligent design would say God stepped in and created us. Now, there's all kinds of different intelligent design time theories in terms of how long it takes um, but this intelligent design basically puts God in the middle of it, jumping in an evolutionary process. But when the evolutionary process cannot carry it, God jumps in and intelligently designs and intercedes so that things will go as he intended. And then finally, theistic evolution. This is a belief in a personal God, just the God of the scriptures, that started and created all that we see and enjoy and then created through the process of evolution all that we know now and gave earth the time. So obviously the six, seven days in Genesis are not 24-hour periods. In fact, they would say, these, these folks would say that the earth is very, very old, 14, 12 to 14 billion years old. Now, as you can see, how much disagreement there is in those. And what I'm telling you is, is that all of those people believe God created, believe that in the personal God of the scriptures and hold the scriptures in high regard. And do the work of trying to understand what the Hebrew meant at the time and all of those kinds of things. There's room for all of these places. In fact, if you were to try to go to our website and say, what's your official view on the, the age of the earth? You won't find one. We don't have an official position on the age of the earth. And I will tell you that based on um, what I know of our staff, we represent a, a very wide swath of all of the things that I just described to you. Pope John Paul II said this, science can purify religion from error and superstition, 
Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw the other into a wider world, a world in which both can flourish. And I would just tell you, people like that you hold probably in high regard and that are quoted in this church a lot, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, N.T. Wright, Oz Guinness, and the list can go on and on. And they hold probably different views towards the creation account than you might think they do. Now, what happens here is we start to ask, but don't you believe the Bible literally? And what I wanna tell you is, is that good scholars in all of those positions believe the Bible literally. The debate is how to interpret the Bible literally with what you have in Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2, and then of course, other accounts. Here's a table that kind of shows, it was out of Dan uh, Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. You don't have to get it and follow along in this series, but I'd encourage you if you wanna begin the work, basically if you wanna begin the work of thinking about creation, Dan would be the most popular way to do it. By popular, I don't mean liked, I mean easy to understand. Um, Then The Language of God is an older book, but it is outstanding. Francis Collins is outstanding. And then John Walton is just, just smart and only a few of you should read it. But you can see by this chart that there's a lot of different views. God created earth and all of life. The atheistic evolution obviously doesn't believe there's a God, so that's a no. But young earth, old earth, and evolutionary creationism all believe that. The earth is billions of years old. It would be yes on atheistic evolution. Young earth, no. Old earth and evolutionary creation, yes. And then evolution describes how life developed. It's yes for the atheistic evolution, young earth, no, old earth, no, evolutionary creation, yes. And those categories actually are are too broad. I've already given you eight. This is just four, and I didn't even count atheistic evolution. So there's just three of the eight represented here. And each of these theories can fall into orthodoxy, each of the last three, except for atheistic evolution. God could have done it however he wants. Can I say that again? He could have done it however he wants. And however he did it, we're never gonna know till we get a chance to ask him about it. No one's gonna know for sure. I'm not telling you what to believe, only that there's a wide path for Christian orthodoxy in the creation discussion. And that depending on which view you hold, you could seriously limit your ability to talk to some of the people that are in your neighborhood or at your workplace. Now, let's take a moment and look at the creation story. Just the first two verses of Genesis, chapter one, and begin to kind of take a look here. In the beginning, God created, and that word there for created is bara, and he created the heavens and the earth. And by the heavens, it, the, they would just look and see, they don't know what's up there, but all of it, it's, it's a statement of inclusion. All that is created in the heavens and then the earth, the world and the universe, all created by God. Now the earth, verse two, now watch. Then it says, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This this word for hovering is quite interesting. It's actually um, 
it's, it's used in other places for an eagle hovering over its nest to protect its young. Same word. So right away, we don't have any mention of time or anything going on. We've got in the beginning, God created. And then later on, it's gonna talk about day one, day two, day three, day four. But right here, it says it's created and it's formless and void. And the spirit of God is hovering over that, like protecting it, guarding it, watching over it. Dan in his book said, Moses is not providing a textbook on the physics of the solar system, the age of the earth or how the gravitational pull of the sun holds the earth in motion, the subatomic details of the Big Bang Theory or anything that addresses our typical scientific questions about origins. He's simply telling the Israelites that all they could see and what they knew had been made by the one true God. Now think about this, when the, when the Hebrew nation heard these words that Moses pens, all they've known their entire life is slavery in an Egyptian culture where the most powerful God, Ra, is the sun God. And of course, there's a moon God and other star gods, and then there's gods that are frogs and gods that are fishes and all gods, all these kinds of things. There's polytheism everywhere. And Moses is trying to make sure that they understand and they actually see and they're gonna get a chance to see when the seas are parted, which they already have probably seen those. The seas part, the, the chariots of, of Pharaoh are destroyed. That God is, is the God, the only God. He's not bickering and petty like the Egyptian gods as they fight with one another, argue about who gets control or cruel to humans. He created all of their, all that you see, the heavens and the earth. And he's actually hovering over before anything is really created and going on. He's already protecting the planet and hovering, taking care of us. What I believe most strongly about Genesis is that it's not written about how, but who. And it's not written about when, but why. Not how, but who? Yahweh, Jehovah, the great God, the only true God. And his personal expression of love and care over this nation. And not when, not how long did it take him, but why did he create it? Why did he want to get involved in relationship here? God wanted the Hebrews to know that he was the only God greater than all the Egyptian gods. He wanted them to know that he's a personal God. He's a caring God. He's involved in their life. He wanted the Hebrews to know that, that who they were because they were his children. God wanted the Hebrew know, Hebrews to know that he created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. It's just a, he was just playing around. He, it was just a creative thought. And he spoke it into being with no effort at all. He is that great and he is that good. Albert Einstein said this, science without God is lame and religion without science is blind. Now, I don't think 
They're listening to a bald dude for about 25 minutes, 27 minutes. Should or will form your deep thoughts around God the creator. I might make you mad and then motivate you to come up with a way to show me wrong. Good enough. Or I might embarrass you inside right now. You're thinking, I don't even know what I think. I don't have a clue. I did a quick poll through with some life groups two weeks ago. It was a big percentage of people that were like, I don't, I don't know. Young earth, what's, young earth, I don't know. So I don't think that I should necessarily form this thing, but I'm hoping that I can kickstart things and get it going. Because here's the deal, in Romans 14, we are told that there are disputable matters in the faith. There are things that are important that we're gonna look at and go, well, I, I'm not sure. And the best we can come up with because the scriptures aren't quite clear enough is a theory about it. And that's why it's called creation theory. That there are disputable matters, but there's something even better than that. This, this past week, I have been jacked by this verse. Actually, the last two weeks. I mean, just I've read this verse a not a billion times. My wife is over there going, you ain't read that verse a billion times. <laughs> Evangelistically speaking, I've read this verse a billion times. <laughs> I read it every verse. I mean, in fact, I've got it memorized, but I read this thing every time we do a newcomers and I talk about the mission of the church. Matthew chapter 28 the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. Context, context, you should be saying, Steve, context. Good. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's shown up. He's hung out with them. Now he's about to give final instructions right at the end of Matthew. He does this in each of the gospels. He'll give kind of some final instructions. Each of them record different ones, but this is called the Great Commission. Matthew 28. So there's your context. Got it? All right, when he saw them, they worshiped him. Doesn't say who they is. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Watch this, this is the part that got me. But some doubted. Now think about this. If we're talking about, he still has the scars. He's still got holes in his hands and holes in his side, I think. Because I think we're gonna get to actually see him. And they see him up, living, talking, eating, singing a hymn with them. He, but some still doubt. Some still doubt. Now, the proper Clifford response would be, those that worship, be warm and be filled, be blessed. I will use you to build my church. You doubters, get your out of here right now. I have no place for you. But then Jesus came and said to them. Who's them? Those that worshiped? Yeah. Those that doubted? 
This means yes. This means no. Those that doubted, they're in too. They're in too. And then he gives them the great commission. Now go and make disciples. So as you sit here, you're probably thinking, some of you are thinking, man, I don't, I don't know. That whole six-day thing, I don't know if I buy it. Young earth, old earth, I don't know. I'm not even sure Jesus is the real deal yet. You're in. You're invited in. Now, you're not in his family yet till you embrace him by faith. You know exactly what it means to be a Christian because I said it. How many baptisms did we have? Because I said it nine times. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came to the earth, died on the cross for your sin and rose the third day? And have you placed your faith in his work on the cross as payment for sin? When you place your faith there, even in doubt, when you place your faith there, you're in. And by the way, we all doubt. Doubt is the bedfellow of faith. I think back to 1973, skinny redheaded teenager. I never touched a Bible that I remember. I'd certainly never read anything from it. And someone spoke to me about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I didn't know really anything about that. I didn't, all I knew was by faith, it, I believed it. I believed the resurrection. I embraced it. I didn't understand old earth, young earth, creation, evolutionary theories. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know who Moses was. I didn't care who Moses was. But if you're here and you're listening and, you're, and you've kind of bought into all the silly caricatures that Christians are just guys, who, guys and gals who just flush their brain down the toilet and believe in a talking snake and, and all of these silly things that are in the scriptures without any explanation, without any thought. Listen, there are thoughtful ways to understand what we're talking about here. What I want to tell you is it don't matter about all that stuff. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Because that will determine eternity for you. So, if you're sitting there and you got full of, you're just full of doubt, <laughs> you're in. Me too. Me too. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you're really, 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 really sure about how it all happened and got started, Would you come tell me? Because <laughs> I'm open to some coaching. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to think deeply about the concerns of our faith to engage our minds, our spirits. We're commanded to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us 
Not because our faith depends on it, not because heaven depends on what we think about the six days of creation. That's not the deal. But there's going to be, that's going to come up. It's going to come up at some point and it's going to be important to somebody. And it would probably blow their minds if we could give a thoughtful response about how we interpret it. And then God, inside of your church, would you protect us from one another? Protect us from the man-made divisions over the age of the earth, the length of a day. Not that those things aren't important. God, they're important. But they're not of primary importance in terms of your community of people. Protect us from one another. That we might be people who can see the great harmony. God, you are the creator of all truth. And truth will not contradict truth. And so we need not fear. Help us to live in a way that sees the great harmony between our faith, the science we see, all that we know and enjoy because you are a great God, creator of heaven and earth and expressing your love in Jesus. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.